I think that a popular misconception among Christians, maybe not all, but perhaps many, is that the most important work in the church is being done by the men who stand in the pulpit. It's a view that certainly is perpetuated by many of those same men, and it's as persistent as it is wrong. I was in the infantry when I was in the Marines, and one of the common refrains among those of us in the infantry was that every other Marine uh, then those in the infantry was just support for the in- infantry. They were just there to support us. We were the most important. They were in the background. We were the ones who made it happen. In other words, if you weren't in the infantry, you weren't much of a Marine. That was the viewpoint that we all had. But what we failed to realize, and it took me years after getting out to realize this to my great shame... What we failed to realize in our arrogance was that without motor transport, without logistics, without the air wing, we in the infantry weren't going anywhere. We weren't getting fed. And we weren't being protected from the skies. And if any lesson can be learned from the war that's taking place in Ukraine, it's that the Russian military was very bad on all of those things. And so their infantry has been bogged down and ineffective in so many ways. When I was in, we didn't realize that the infantry cannot function alone. But without so-called support, we infantrymen were nothing. Every single Marine was just as important as the infantryman. Now the church, and ordained ministry in particular, has the same way of thinking, unfortunately, and it has taken hold in the wider church. I knew men in seminary who said something along the lines of, well, I'm a Christian and I want to serve God And ordained ministry is the best way to serve God. It's the most important way to serve God. For its part, the seminary that I attended, they tried to help their students to understand the importance of the church in a man's call to the ministry, to understand the importance of the individual member in the church. But that didn't resonate with everyone who was paying money to take these classes. But the truth is, the biblical truth is that, is that there are a variety of ways for believers to serve the Lord without being in ordained ministry. And they are no less important or any less legitimate than being a minister. You don't have to be an ordained officer in the church to be an important member of the church. By virtue of being a member of Christ's church, you are important and essential and integral. That was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks about the fact that the church is one body that's made up of many parts, and that no single part is more important than another. God has gifted individual members differently. And it's only when we're all put together in a local body that we work well. We work in a unified way. But that's not the particular point of this this morning's passage. In this passage, Paul is commending the Philippians for a particular way in which they have partnered with him in the gospel. In verse 3, Paul tells the saints at Philippi, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now he's going to give the, the because, the reason, or at least one of the reasons why he thanks God every time he remembers the Philippian church later on. But first, he wants them to know that he regularly expresses his gratitude to God for them. Every time he remembers them, he thanks God for them. And his remembrance of them, we have to imagine, is quite frequent. Now the word forgive thanks is the word from which Eucharist is derived. And Paul regularly uses this word in the introduction to his many letters. 
He wants to encourage the Philippian brothers and sisters by letting them know that he regularly thinks about them and prays for them. And as you know from your own experience, it's good to be thought about. It's good to be prayed for, to, 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 to be made known that you're being prayed for. When Paul writes the words, my God, there in verse 3, he does not mean his God as opposed to someone else's God, some other God. He's not giving support to some sort of religious relativism that your religion, your God is just as valuable and, uh, sorry, valuable and valid as my God is. Paul is putting an accent on the personal nature of his relationship with God. God is not impersonal and distant for Paul. Instead, he is my God. He is close to Paul and he is close to you and me and all those who know and have faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul thanks his God and all his remembrance of the Philippians. Now look at verses 3 and 4 for just a moment. Look at the, the uses of the word all there, various forms of it. His use of all in verse 3 is the first of four uses of the word in these two verses, 3 and 4. This has been referred to as the fourfold use of all. And so the word for all or a variation of it is repeated in verse 4 in the ESV with the words always, every, and all. But think about that. In two verses he uses this word four times. In all of Paul's remembrances of the Philippians, he thanks God always in every prayer for them all. Why would Paul be so repetitive, so seemingly redundant? Well, if you've worked in any sort of industry, you know that that built-in redundancies are important. Paul is being redundant to make a point here. According to one commentator, this speaks to the need for unity in Philippi and removes any sense of Paul taking sides. It may be that in the Philippian church... Some factions have begun to emerge. Perhaps some division or other has begun to take place there. Paul is speaking in a very unifying way. He prays for all of them. He doesn't have favorites. He loves them all. Paul's emphasis on the partnership he has with the Philippians requires unity among themselves. Paul wants them to see themselves as a single unit. Not an assembly of a bunch of different factions. One single unit. And in the way that Paul speaks of his prayers for the Philippians, he wants to reinforce to them that they are one body. What Jesus Christ prayed for his church in his high priestly prayer. Father, my prayer is that they might be one. Paul is saying that, they, that the Philippian church is one. They are one. And he says that his prayers for them, which are frequent, are always filled with joy. He has great fondness for them, and whenever he remembers them, it's accompanied with joy. It's not accompanied with with grief or some sort of regret about them or some sort of anxiety or worry over them in the way that it might have been for the Corinthian church or some other church. But remember for a moment Paul's circumstances when he wrote this letter, if you're aware of, of it. Joy was not something that Paul would have been expected to have given his current circumstances. He was imprisoned at this point in his life. And according to Acts chapter 28, verse 20, he was wearing a chain. The type of chain that specifically was attached to one of Emperor Nero's Praetorian guards. He was in bondage. He was under house arrest, but it wasn't a great kind of house arrest. He was constantly chained to another person, another man. He was living under the threat of possible death. He was caring for a severely ill Paphroditus who was so sick that they thought he might die. 
And so all of the ingredients for Paul at this point in his life are there for him to be miserable, not to be filled with joy. But for Paul, joy is drawn from his utter trust in God's sovereignty, as one commentator puts it. He doesn't draw his joy from external factors, from the the circumstances in which he finds himself. He draws joy from the fact that he knows who his Redeemer is. Now, verse 5, Paul continues the thought that he began in verse 3. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I skipped over verse 4 to show the train of thought that Paul has. In verse 5, he gives the, the because for why he thanks God and all of his remembrances of the Philippians. As we mentioned earlier, Paul has a reason why he thanks God for them at every opportunity. And here it is, for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians' partnership in the gospel, according to one commentator, is arguably the crux of the letter, even though it's front-loaded here. It's among the first five verses that Paul writes in this letter to the Philippians. It's so important, he front-loads it, he wants them to see... What it is, the main point of this letter, he's thanking them for their partnership with him in the gospel. And this Greek word that's translated partnership is one that many of you may have heard, koinonia. It's often translated fellowship. That's Generally speaking, if you're aware of the word koinonia, you know that it means fellowship, right? But there are many other ways that the word is translated. In Romans chapter 15, verse 26, Paul uses the word there. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor saints, Uh, The poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And the word translated there, contribution, is koinonia. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Paul uses the word twice, and it's translated participation. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Elsewhere in the New Testament, outside of Paul's writings, it's used in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, and translated there, share. Do not neglect to do good and to share with what what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This word, koinonia, is used 19 times in the New Testament, 13 of which are found in Paul's letters. And in about eight of those 19 times, the ESV translates that word, fellowship. Eleven other times it's translated in a different way. One commentator writes, the term koinonia and other related terms are rooted in the idea of a legal relationship of common ownership. It's common nowadays to speak of the need for a person to take ownership of something, meaning that they really care about it. If you really take ownership of your job, you're going to to do a good job at it. You're going to take personal pride in what you do. And so in a sense, Paul is thanking them for so investing themselves in the gospel ministry and particularly in throwing their lot in with him that they have taken ownership of his gospel ministry. It's not just Paul's ministry. It's their ministry through Paul. Now the word that's translated gospel, from which the English word evangelical is derived, is used 130 times in the New Testament, 81 of those times in Paul's writings. Sometimes the word is used as a noun, as in the gospel according to Mark. Other times it's used as a verb, as in to evangelize. The word is used by Paul eight times in the book of Philippians, always in the form of a noun. And one of those eight uses in this letter is very helpful in our understanding of what Paul means here. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verse 22, Paul writes, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Now, Timothy is not Paul's son, not biologically, but Paul regarded Timothy as his spiritual son. Timothy was as close to Paul as any son is with his father. But remember this, that Timothy was already a believer when he first encountered Paul. So it wasn't because Paul was involved in Timothy's conversion that Paul regarded Timothy as his spiritual son. It was because Timothy had become such a close partner with Paul in the gospel. Timothy's desire for the gospel to be spread matched Paul's desire for it to be spread. Timothy had completely given himself over to gospel ministry. And it's for those reasons that Paul gives Timothy in chapter 2 verse 22 as an example to the Philippians. But it also helps the Philippians to understand what Paul means in chapter 1 verse 5 when he commends them for their partnership with him. Their partnership is just as valuable to Paul as Timothy's partnership is. They might not be involved in the same way as Timothy or Paul in the gospel ministry, but their partnership is equally valuable. And Paul feels the same way for the Philippian saints as he, as he does for Timothy. He loves them just as much as he loves Timothy. Their partnership was different. Timothy packed up and he left home to work with Paul in his missionary endeavors, but it was just as important because their partnership made Paul's and Timothy's mission possible. There are various ways to serve. Not everyone has to be the talking head of a local body of Christ's church to be of great service to Christ and his church. Paul understands that though he was told specifically by God that he and Silas should go to Macedonia, the Macedonian mission, and all, uh, and all gospel proclamation work, it involves more than just a couple of evangelists. It was as if the very first place where Paul and Silas ministered was primed and ready to participate with them in the gospel ministry. So from the first day until now, they had joined in partnership with Paul. Now just think for a moment of Lydia and of the Philippian jailer. When they came to faith in Jesus Christ by means of the proclamation of, of, uh, of the gospel by Paul and Silas, it's easy to see how they would want to ensure that other people had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Whether it was spearheaded by Lydia and the Philippian jailer, the fact is that the Philippian church immediately immersed themselves in the support of Paul and Silas's Gentile mission. They knew that they had been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ as if by the sprinkling of water, and straight away they wanted others to come to know their Savior. So what does it mean for the Philippians to be in partnership in the gospel? Certainly it means that they partnered with Paul in prayer. They prayed for him regularly, lifted him up. They partnered with Paul in his suffering. They sent Epaphroditus to him while he was in prison to provide companionship and comfort for Paul. And yet, ironically, Epaphroditus is the one who needs to be ministered to, cared for when he's there with Paul. They also partnered with Paul in resisting false teaching, as Paul encourages them to do in chapter 3 of this letter. But as Paul makes clear in chapter 4 about the Philippian church, it was the Philippians alone who entered into partnership with him in their financial support of Paul. He writes in verses 15 and 16, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. 
Thessalonica was the very next place to which Paul went after he left Philippi. It's recounted in Acts chapter 17. Paul engaged in gospel ministry there right after he left Philippi. Already the Philippian church is supporting him. He left with their financial blessings. And so Paul is reminding them in chapter 4 that they immediately began to support him. They immediately were aware of the great need for the gospel to spread. And so they ensured its spread by supporting Paul and Silas financially. And so for Paul, in the overall context of the letter to the Philippians, the primary way in which they have partnered with or in the gospel, the primary way in which they have shown koinonia in the gospel is through their financial gifts. This wasn't the only, the exclusive way that they partnered with Paul, but for Paul, it was the most tangible. When commentator writes, it is... It seems unreasonable to deny that the Philippians' financial contributions, understood as concrete evidence of the genuineness of that response to the gospel, must have been foremost in the apostles' mind. That's Lightfoot being quoted there. In other words, their financial gifts to Paul was sure proof of their love for him and their commitment to his proclamation of the gospel, and Paul did not forget it. He didn't take it for granted. He didn't assume that it was always going to continue. He was grateful for it. The Philippians' financial gifts helped to free up Paul, a tent maker by trade, to focus exclusively on reaching the lost with the gospel. For Paul, time spent making tents made meant time away from proclaiming the good news. We have to imagine that Paul lived in a meager existence. His overhead was probably pretty low, but he still had to eat. He had to have clothes. He had to have transportation often across the sea. These things cost money. And the financial support that he received from the Philippian church freed Paul from being a burden to other churches. Paul explicitly mentions this in the passage from 2 Corinthians that we read just before the sermon. He says in 2 Corinthians 11 9 that he did not burn the, burden the Corinthians while he was with them because the brothers who came from Macedonia, which would have included the Philippian church, supplied his need. What the Corinthians saw as a burden, the need to support a minister of the gospel, the Philippians saw as a privilege. And so the Corinthians' disposition can be summarized like this. You mean we've got to support this guy? We didn't ask for him to come to us. But here he is. He wants us to support him. The Philippians' disposition was more along the lines of, we get to support Paul so that he is free from the cares of the world, so that he can devote himself to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. The Corinthians saw it as a burden, but the Philippians took great joy in the fact that they were helping to further the gospel. Their partnership made it happen. And they saw their financial gift as an act of worship. So did Paul. He speaks of their gifts this way in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when he describes them as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is the language used of the Old Testament sacrifices, which were central to the Old Testament church's worship. Now there's a danger of a sermon like this, several dangers, in fact, regarding partnering in the gospel by means of financial support. And one of the dangers is that you might think you're being admonished for not giving enough. The fact is you give generously. You have always given generously. That's not the purpose of this sermon. The occasion is, of course, the thank offering. And that's totally optional. This sermon really is meant to encourage you. It's to encourage you for what you have been doing, to encourage you to keep on doing it. 
It's an encouragement to you to remember that you, like the Philippians, were once lost and you have been found. Remember what it was like before Christ rescued you from your deadness in sin. And let your remembrance of that fuel your desire for others to be rescued. Don't let them end up on the day of judgment wondering what happened. Don't wait until that day. You have an ability right now to partner in the gospel, in its proclamation. When you give to this church, you not only support an entire family so that your pastor can be free from worldly care in order to devote himself to the preaching and the teaching of God's word, you also support all of the the ministries of our presbytery and our denomination. You support our home missionaries. You support our foreign missionaries. You support Christian education. And so remember this, brothers and sisters. God has saved you through the proclamation of the gospel. Continue to partner in the gospel so that others who do not yet know him will be called to faith in Jesus Christ and repentance for their sins. It's amazing. When you give financially, that's what you're doing. You're enabling others down the line. To hear the call of the gospel, the good news, in the same way that you did. How many ever years ago when it happened for you? Amen.